You are listening to the Kelly Confidential Podcast with Kelly Wilkes. This is episode three. Welcome to the Kelly Confidential Show, where we talk negotiation essentials and those crucial conversations empowering extraordinary women. Real women, real issues, Let's jump in. Hey there, lovely people. How are you all doing? How was your January? We're nearly to mid-February now, and I don't know about you, but I find January and February a bit tough going. Part of me really enjoys the renewed focus coming out of January and the start of a new year. It's nice to get back into a routine and to start eating, sleeping better without the mania of the holidays. But I also find it hard work probably because here in the UK, January and Feb are our darkest and wettest months of the year. And we had so much rain in January and the days are really short and yeah, it's just dreary. And with a dog, it's not great. Um, She's coming back into and out of the house, you know, just wet, mucky feet. But then my best friend's birthday is in January on the 11th, so I suppose great things can come out of January too. In the meantime, yes, I say roll on spring and longer days. And yeah, what do you think? Anybody agree with me or maybe January and February are are totally your thing? And that's okay too. Um, so let's, yeah, let's crack on. In this episode, building on my first episode where I touched on fear and the anxiety of starting a negotiation, I used going to the gym as an analogy. So how was that for you? Did you get to the gym and was it like presto change magic? Did you walk out of the gym after one session, a brand new person? And if you did, I seriously need to try your gym. Um, <laughs> But really, I'd love to know how you got on either at the gym, because, you know, none of us are getting any younger and fitness is important, um, or really more importantly and relevant for this group, did you try out a new opportunity to negotiate and how did it work out for you? If you're just starting and not sure how to practice, listen to episode two. Um, where I list my top 12 scenarios you should negotiate every time, or at least use it for practice. Give, you know, even just a couple of them a, a try and see how it feels. See what your results look like. Because just like our biceps, they won't strengthen on their own. They need resistance training. And a single trip to the gym isn't going to cut it. You need to keep trying. And with each practice, you'll get more and more resilient, more and more confident. So yes, back to our topic today, fear. Why do we feel fear in negotiation? Well, I can say this is a mammoth topic in itself, um, one that I will break down um, and cover over the course of, of, I think, many episodes. And I'm I'm planning to run a a series on different um, aspects and triggers of fear. But let's start with something manageable and important today. Today, I'm going to talk about why we experience fear in negotiation 
or what we recognize as fear. Then I'm going to talk about why it happens, because trust me, you are not alone here. Um, Even just putting this podcast together, I found daunting just talking about fear and, and thinking about times where I had my own challenges, you know, working through very difficult negotiations. We've all been here. And so, yeah, that's our topic today, fear. And I'm going to give you three really effective micro lessons to deal with those fears. So firstly, how do we process fear? What does it look like? Well, the body is an amazing thing and it goes into autopilot, essentially, when a number of circumstances arise, which is mostly good, although some would say that's not always helpful. And fear management is one of those times that the body tries to manage itself. And what I'm talking about here is when the body reacts physically to a perceived threat. And I say perceived because it's it's not real. It's not in the physical sense, um, but it's a threat. It's a perceived that threat nonetheless. Real or imagined is, is how I sort of qualify it. So let's think of a few such scenarios that produce a fear response. Number one, and these are these are just general, but let's start with this. Number one, taking a test. We've all been there. That's very stressful. Number two, learning to drive or maybe learning something complicated for the first time um, that might have involved, you know, mechanics or having to be coordinated. I mean, maybe even learning to dance, getting new dance moves in. I mean, these are these can be difficult things. Um, especially if you're getting older like me, um, or number three, um, maybe you're afraid of heights or confined places, or if you're like me, snakes, I have a deep, deep visceral fear of snakes, but it wasn't always that way. It was really only after a certain event um, growing up that my fear became a very real experience. Um, Growing up in Colorado, snakes were pretty common to see, and really they were there long, you know, before people. And they just come with the territory. And growing up, we were a very outdoorsy family. We were usually high in the mountains of Colorado camping most every weekend in the summertime. We we were really fortunate because my dad was just an avid outdoorsman and, and really passed that love down to me and my sister. So yeah, camping was a, was a common thing. And I don't mean like, you know, glamping, I mean like proper get dirty camping. Um, so rattlesnakes were something to look out for. We knew, you know, what to look for, um, what to listen for and how to respect their space. But that didn't mean that you could avoid them altogether. And so how old were we? We were still just kiddos. I would say I was about, I don't know, eight or nine. And my sister was a few years older than me. We were camping with my parents at a reservoir near Fort Collins, Colorado. I think it was our first time at this particular lake because I'm sure we would have remembered this and not done what we did. But anyway, we were, you know, adventurous, scrappy kids, and my parents were quite good about letting us explore and go climbing, you know, so long as we stayed near the campsite within reasonable hollering distance for supper. 
And on this occasion, the reservoir was a bit small. So we asked if, you know, we could go explore the spillway on the opposite side of the reservoir. There was like a path through the sagebrush, you know, no hiking involved. My mom would be able to see us as we walked to the perimeter. So off we went, promising to be back soon. I think lunch was coming, you know, so tops, we would have been gone in an hour. What we didn't know was that the path didn't maintain its elevated position at the point it reached the spillway. Instead, the path meandered, taking us down to the bottom of the spillway, which given it was a major water runoff, you know, kind of made sense. But then we found ourselves at the bottom of the spillway, staring up at a wall of huge strategically laid boulders um, forming the sides of the spillway. And, you know, really we wanted to be at the top. We were kids. Where else would we want to be? So we, you know, had to get up there. Anyway, my sister charged ahead with me, you know, right behind her as usual, um, scrambling up and over these massive people-sized boulders And it was hard. It was hard. I remember being hot and it was like slow going because we had to heft ourselves up onto these, these, you know, tall boulders. And also to be fair, I don't think we were actually meant to be climbing on them. And we hadn't climbed very far and we could hear this noise like static. I don't know how else to just, it was just like a staticky hum. We thought it was water, but you know, I don't know, we just kept going and then there wasn't enough water coming over the spillway to make that sound, but you know, we just kept going. Anyway, I'm not sure what happened next. I'm I'm not sure which of us spotted it first, but I vaguely recollect my sister stopping abruptly and me slipping on the rock not far behind her. We everything just came to a, an instant halt. And my foot missed the edge and I sort of fell into the rock at an angle and I I really cut up my shin. And then everything froze and reality dawned on us and we realized we were climbing amongst rattlesnake nests and rattlesnakes sunbathing. And I remember just terror. I remember staring at a sandy coiled length of rope just in front of me and my sister shout shouted and hurled herself down the rocks. I mean, like hurled herself and my skin just snapped. I re- I just remember becoming very hot and it going prickly all over like a rash. And then I don't really remember the rest of the climb down or noise my senses don't, they didn't record those things. I remember the pain in my legs as I literally threw myself down the last few boulders chasing my sister, just in total blind panic. We were so freaked out. We thought any old rock was a snake at that point and just screamed our bloody heads off all the way around the reservoir, just running and crying and screaming and repeat all the way around. And and our mom came running out and met us and I think she thought we'd encountered an axe murderer for for how we were behaving. But I mean, it was pure, pure terror. Miraculously, neither of us were bitten. Truly, I have zero idea how that happened for all the scrambling and the bloody racket we must have made on the way down. Um, Both of us were caught up 
pretty well on our shins and our hands and knees. Um, but otherwise we were alive and we never left the campsite for the rest. I mean, didn't step an inch away from the campsite. We just stuck very close to our parents and our giant Doberman and we never camped there again. That was, that was was the first and last time. So in the story I just shared, my body's reaction was a flight reaction. Do you all know what I mean when I say that? I'm talking about the fight, flight, or freeze response that acts as an auto trigger when our brain to our nervous system, well, from our brain to our nervous system when we're under threat. Here's the part where we get a bit technical. So just stay with me for a few moments. I'm just going to talk through this next part, but I think it's really important that you understand what what physical changes happen in the body and why they happen. So the fight, flight, or freeze response is controlled by a small but mighty um, part of the brain called the amygdala. It's very small. It's an almond-shaped structure located um, fairly deep in the brain, just behind the eyes, really, slightly behind the, the prefrontal cortex as well. And it's responsible for processing emotions, particularly fear. And when the amygdala senses a threat, which happens in milliseconds, it's so fast, it sends an alarm signal to the rest of the brain and it triggers the release of hormones, namely adrenaline and cortisol, which cause physical changes in the body. And you've probably heard, I think in the last 10 years, just so many um, topics about stress management in the body um, and the very negative side effects of cortisol on the body. And it, it really causes a lot of physical changes. And, and so we're going to talk about that just now. These changes prepare us to either fight or flee from the danger. So when I say prepares us, it does things like slow our digestion and increase our heart rate so that our limbs are pumping blood faster, effectively getting our bodies ready for battle. Have you, I mean, ever noticed these changes in your body when you were in a meeting? Um, They may have seemed... They may not have seemed obvious, I guess, at the at the time. They might have seemed small, but they can result in things like dry mouth, extreme thirst, twitchiness, brain fog, forgetfulness, poor digestion. Um, do any of those sound familiar? These are all symptoms of your amygdala taking over, hence the name amygdala hijack, uh, which I talk about a fair amount in my courses um, the amygdala hijacked was coined by Daniel Goleman in his book, Emotional Intelligence, which is a great book, by the way. If you haven't read it, I do recommend it. Think of the amygdala as the body's security system. It's always on the lookout for danger and ready to activate the fight, flight, or freeze response in a split second. This really rapid response helps us to survive in dangerous situations But because the amygdala isn't able to discern between a real-life threat like an advancing giant polar bear versus a tricky business situation, it can also cause problems when it's activated in inappropriate situations, such as before, during a stressful negotiation. 
To manage the fight, flight, or freeze response, it's important to understand when and why it's activated and to learn coping strategies for controlling it. And the good news is that the amygdala doesn't act alone. Other parts of the brain, such as the prefrontal cortex, which controls rational thought, can help control and regulate the you know, fight, flight, or freeze responses. And there are things that we can do too. Um, in his book, Goldman emphasizes that self-control is crucial when facing someone who is in the throes of an amygdala hijack. So as to avoid, avoid such a hijack, whether in work situations or in private life, meaning that if we respond to the perceived threat with the same corresponding anger, aggression, or destructiveness, nothing positive or productive can be accomplished. And so it's, it's equally about how we maintain some level of calm and really importantly, how we can recognize that our body is starting to respond adversely to stress. And crucially, we want to stop that from advancing further. Because once you're in the amygdala hijack and you're in that zone of panic or fight where you become aggressive, it's so hard to, to step back from that. So it's really important to recognize these changes in our body and, and counter those. It's equally important to recognize some of these behaviors in your counterpart. So the person that you might be negotiating with, are they suddenly twitchy? Are they suddenly aggressive? Are they suddenly um, anxious looking, which could be a sign of, of imminent flight? These are really important things to, to be aware of because it will make a big difference to what happens next in the rest of your negotiation. And so back to Daniel Goleman and, and his his view of the amygdala. He's right, isn't he? I mean, have you been in that situation perhaps where you've had a disagreement with maybe your partner or perhaps a colleague and you were either caught off guard or found yourself losing control to another person on something that, that was important to you? I'll bet it stirred some anger. Um, but did it stir more than that? Did you find yourself saying things you later regretted? wished you could gobble those words right back into your mouth. I know I have. That's likely an amygdala hijack you experienced. But all's not lost. There's help. We can um, counteract some of this and we can really avoid and mitigate some of this by developing healthy coping strategies, implying other techniques. We can reduce the frequency and intensity and the nuisance really of these amygdala responses and I'm going to show you how. So what can we do to deal with fear when our lives aren't actually in imminent danger and there is no polar bear chasing us? Well, here's micro lesson number one. Know your body and keep relaxation techniques at the ready. That's right. This long held advice is no gimmick. Studies have shown that when the hippocampus tells us the amygdala or tells the amygdala itself that the body is under attack, it triggers the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal gland responsible for the threat response. Um, and unfortunately, this triggers faster than the rational brain. So the brain, the brain prepares for battle or a major sprint. 
Either way, blood moves to the extremities, blood glucose levels rise, digestion slows, breathing increases, and you can see the picture this will present. You, you end up in a very stressed situation, even quietly at the board table. And those are the worst times, actually, for it to happen because it always feels like you're the only one having a silent meltdown, making it doubly bad because then you beat yourself up for it and it becomes this just vicious cycle. We really want to avoid that. So here's what you do. If you know, if you know you're about to have a difficult conversation, you load up on all the things your body would normally deplete in a fight or flight scenario. And here are my top six that work for me every time. Number one, water is your friend. So number one is water. Water is your friend. Absolutely crucial that you hydrate before the meeting. Have a glass about an hour before and another half glass before the meeting. Water helps to oxygenate the blood, critical for keeping you calm, and it also helps with that dry mouth issue. Number two, eat protein. Yep. Make sure you have a protein-rich meal before those difficult conversations. Why? Well, because you're helping to counter the blood sugar spike that comes from a stressful encounter. No donuts and lay off any sugary snacks, anything that's going to be really high glucose, high sugar until after the meeting. And and then, I don't know, treat it like a reward maybe. Um, Eggs and avocado or a low sugar yogurt and some nuts are absolutely perfect. And, and trust me, this will help. Number three, caffeine. Avoid coffee an hour about for avoid coffee for, yeah, probably no more than an hour before your meeting. Um, and I'm not kidding, but I'm, I'm not saying you should skip this altogether. I am a big coffee fan, so I'm definitely not saying forego. I'm just saying throttle back a bit on the day. And I know this may sound counterintuitive, but trust me, coffee spikes blood sugar and can really add to the jitteriness, neither of which you need. Instead, if you're thirsty, just revisit point one and load up on water. And in fact, I always recommend taking a glass of water with you into the negotiation, have it ready so it's there. Um, Yeah, it's just important. Number four, stand. Just be upright. Um, Studies have shown, and and you'll, you'll find this for yourself as soon as you do it, but studies have shown that standing um, in, you know, either during or immediately before difficult conversations is really helpful because it does a couple of things. It allows you to um, lengthen out your your sternum area so you get more air in, you're able to breathe better. And it also makes you feel taller and more confident. And those things combined are just winners for difficult conversations. The, but I'm not stopping there because I don't want you to just stand up. That's not what it's about. It's about being upright. So I want you to stand and go for a short walk for about five to 10 minutes before you start the meeting. Maybe go around the office, to the restroom, to your desk. Keep the pace slow, calm steps, breathe through your nose, out your mouth quietly. You know, none of this is fast. You're doing it at, at a slowish pace. 
and just relaxing, really relaxing your neck muscles, your shoulders, just getting blood flow into your tissues, which keeps you oxygenated. And oxygen is critical for decision-making. And if you're working from home, take a short stroll, maybe around the block or just to the end of the block. Fresh air does wonders for calming nerves. Um, So yeah, number five, breathing. Breathing techniques are a godsend, whether in the throes of physical danger or um, a difficult business meeting. This is why you'll see, you know, like EMTs and medics instructing panicked people, um, like emergency services, to breathe, to drop their head between their knees and so on. I mean, let's hope it doesn't get to that in the boardroom, but yeah, deep breathing through the nose and out the mouth. Hold for a bit longer each time. It pays major dividends. This actually really works well when you can't sleep and you've got a bit of um, insomnia. Um, Really deep breathing where you take really deep breaths. Hold it, count to three, four, and then out. It's, It's incredible what it does to calm and also to focus. Um, helps to clear the mind and it tricks the brain into thinking crisis. What crisis? And finally, number six, sleep. I cannot say enough about this. Sleep makes your world go round. Literally. It helps with digestion, cell repair, tissue regeneration, and critically problem solving and decision-making. Ever had a morning after a very late night with with or without alcohol? Um, and were you clear-eyed like a spring chicken the next day? I mean, I would love to know <laughs> what that looks like for you because I cannot cope like that, you know. And, you know, were your thoughts firing on all cylinders the next morning? I would venture no. And, and that's just after one day of a very late night, you know, again, with or without alcohol. But so now imagine an accrued number of nights with poor or too little sleep. It has the same effect on the body as a hangover. So if you've got something really important coming up, a, a really critical business meeting that you might be fretting over or a really important negotiation coming up, Try to load up on sleep, maybe two, even three nights ahead of your big meeting. You know, get to bed between nine and 10 o'clock at the latest. And I'm not kidding. I mean this and, and it will pay you dividends. And at the very least, definitely make sure you're going to bed really at a decent early time the night before. Okay. And now on to micro lesson two. So practice. Practice is the, the second way to combat fear and and amygdala hijacks in a negotiation. Practice your negotiation skills so these scenarios become more second nature and are just not as scary. There really is no replacement for practice. It pays dividends in every pursuit, whether you're learning the piano or learning how to counter a bad deal. The more opportunities you have to learn and flex your experience, the more prepared you will be. How do you do that? Well, haggle more to start. Listen to episode two um, for some inspiration. I gave 12 examples of everyday engagements where you can practice your negotiation mindset. These scenarios will help to navigate deal-making conversations with complete strangers. Plus, it will boost your confidence. So it's a double benefit. 
And finally, micro lesson three. I want you to address the elephant in the room. Okay, so you're like, what does she mean by that? I mean you. You are the elephant in the room. Negotiations, much like public speaking, have an uncanny way of amplifying insecurities and any self-esteem issues. You will not be able to escape this. Trust me, I've been there and I've got the t-shirt. So if you have stuff, you need to sort that stuff. And everyone has stuff. And I'm talking about your mental health here, just in case there was any confusion. It's your mental health. If you know your stuff is more present, like you're going through a breakup, you're grieving a loved one or the loss of a pet, maybe um, you're angry at your boss, whatever. If it's, if it's really present and it's just below the surface, that means it's not processed. It means you've got stuff lingering. And if that's the case, it will absolutely sit down at the table with you in that negotiation. And you know what? That kind of guest we don't want. That kind of guest will never be helpful in your negotiation. What it will do instead is sabotage all of your hard work, your expertly made omelet, your strategically placed glass of water, your well-practiced notes. All of it will be compromised by that monkey on your back. Your mental health is part and parcel to your success in deal-making please be kind to yourself and invest in it. And what do I mean? Well, just like your car, if it's sluggish and backfiring, every time you get over a certain mile per hour, you you take it to the mechanic, right? And get it serviced. Your mental health, the padlock to emotional intelligence needs occasional servicing just as much as your car. So if you're going to build a company, buy a company, lead a company where you will need to be able to navigate difficult conversations, negotiate deals regularly, invest in yourself and get a good therapist that you can rely on as and when you need it. And by a therapist, I don't mean your partner or your best friend. Just to be clear, those people hold a very special role in your lives, all of our lives, just like parents and teachers, they don't have the faculties to be a therapist. And really, we shouldn't be putting that responsibility on them. So don't sh- shortcut this path. Going into crucial conversations with a men- healthy mental outlook can make all the difference in your deal making. So please, please invest in that. If you like my show and want to hear more of these topics, please give me a like and follow us. And please join my mail list to find out about upcoming courses, which will be heading your way this spring. Go to kellyconfidential.com and subscribe to our newsletter. And so, hey, we've made it to the end. Woohoo! You did it. How did it feel? For some folks, I think even talking about fear and stress can create a little knot in their stomach and, and that's okay. It just means you're human. And I hope it means this topic is important to you because it's an important topic and probably one we don't talk about enough, but we need to. We just need to be talking about it more. So today we've covered three ways to deal with the overly enthusiastic amygdala, 
to avoid an irrational fight or flight response. These included number one, healthy techniques involving food, water, and breathing. Number two, practice. And number three, mental health maintenance. This type of self care will pay you threefold in creating a calmer, more productive, more focused, and possibly more profitable outcome for you and your business. Good luck, and we'll see you next time when I will broadcast my interview with Dr. Samantha O'Loughlin, genetic scientist and mosquito expert who will share her experience of a career in science, along with her really fascinating insights of the COP15 Biodiversity Summit she just attended in Montreal. It's going to be great. See you there.